Hey friends, it is Sunday, November 15th. Can you believe it's November 15th? And uh, we're in Ephesians chapter 6 for our teaching text today. We only have two Sundays left in Ephesians, so sadly we're skipping chapter 5. But today, uh, Ephesians 6, we're going to read verses 10 through 18. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you send your spirit as the church is gathering, you know, at the building on Sunday morning, as folks are listening uh, online or watching online, Lord, would it please you to send your spirit, make your word alive in our hearts and alive in the experience of our lives uh, so that we can, we can do this work uh, with power. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up in uh, South and West Tulsa, so I was a stone's throw from Sepulpa on the west and, and not far from Glenpool uh, to the south. It was the city of Tulsa, but it was uh, Creek County, and so we were way out in a space, space where we had like tons of room to just explore, and, and uh, like it was really fun to be a kid growing up out there. Uh, I don't have any memories growing up of my parents like telling me where I could or could not go. I, I never recall them being particularly concerned. There was just an assumption of safety. And so I would take day-long bike rides. I would record songs off of the radio onto a cassette tape, and I'd put the cassette tape in a backpack and just ride all around uh, on my bike. Uh, sometimes I would take uh, our four-wheelers out and take them out, out of the neighborhood onto main roads and go wherever I wanted to. Um, I would walk by myself over to this pond in the middle of a wood, the woods near my house. And I just did whatever I wanted and, and had a, a sense of complete safety growing up uh, as a kid. At night, we would leave our cars in the driveway. I never remember us feeling the need uh, to lock our cars. You probably could have just left your keys in the ignition and it wouldn't have mattered. Uh, we never had a security system. There was never a feeling like we needed one. I have no memories of even hearing of break-ins happening uh, near our house. When I look back on my growing up years over in South and West Tulsa, it was just a vision of safety and security. Now, fast forward to life today. I, Emily and I live in the middle of town, and you can see this marked contrast between how I grew up and, and our experience of like the need to secure our own safety living in the heart of the city. 
So naturally, at the end of the day, we, we lock our doors, we turn on our security system. In our neighborhood, we have a neighborhood Facebook page, and there are those neighbors, I'm sure you have them in your neighborhood too, who comment and take a picture of every like rando walking through the neighborhood, and everybody also has that one neighbor that calls the cops on people if they don't have a clue who they are. Uh, tons of folks these days have the ring doorbells so that you have you have live footage. You can see anyone who might be approaching your front door. There seems to be this assumption now, at least for many, that didn't exist when I was growing up, that there are bad people who will do bad things if we don't keep our guard up and our eyes open. We're very safety conscious. I also think it's reflective of living in a post-9-11 world, too. Um, but, but this not only applies to our, our own desire for physical space, safety, but we also have this awareness, this alertness uh, that we need to be looking out for our safety in digital spaces too. Now, when folks ask me about our church, I say we got a ton of folks who are my parents' age and a ton of folks who are my age and younger. And so I know for the younger folks, I mean like 40 and, uh, young, and under in our church, I know you've had this experience with your parents or people your parents' age. Uh, how many of you who are 40 and younger have had the experience of, you know, your mom or your dad or aunt or uncle saying, yeah, I had one of those banners pop up that said I want a free iPad, and so I clicked on it, and you're like, don't click on it. Or they tell the story of, I got contacted by this Nigerian prince, and all he needed was my bank account, and all of our alarms are going off because we are native to this digital space. And you have to tell mom or dad, that's a phishing scheme. They're duping you. If it sounds fake or suspect, you should probably ignore it. We've learned in this world, in the West, we've, we've learned to be on the defensive with our cars and our homes and our credit scores and our digital security. And yet we are often foolishly naive and underprepared to defend the security of our hearts and our minds and our souls from both subtle and overt attacks from the enemy. It's like Samson with Delilah, where we too readily flirt with those things that could take our strength from us. The author of Proverbs writes this. He says, at the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight. It's getting dark outside as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. Well, the author seems to, to presume that we get what's going on. You know, why is it dangerous to go near her house? We were given no context for this, but we already know that this youth, this simple person, is, is wandering at night into a neighborhood of a scandalous woman, a, a prostitute. And why is that a bad idea? Because young men with those kinds of temptations tend to make bad choices alone at night in the presence of that kind of temptation. The author writes elsewhere, the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. My son, says the author, keep to a path far from her. 
Do not go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. The author of the Proverbs is pointing out the folly of the young man. You know, how do you keep your way pure? Stay out of her neighborhood. Stay out of of there at night. Why? Because you know what you're going to be tempted to do if you end up there. Now, not everyone identifies with this kind of uh, temptation, but few temptations truly catch us by surprise. In the words of Don Chaffer, you can pretty much see it coming at the sister from all the way across town. In fact, though we all struggle differently, most temptations come down to some form or combination of money, sex, and power. Go through the downfall of any great person in human history, and you're going to find that there was a temptation, one way or another, related to money, sex, and power. David was doing really great as a person until he had money and power. And then his untamed sexual desire wreaked havoc on his life. Solomon starts out as super wise, called by some the the wisest man who ever lived until hunger for power and sexual desire prompted him to make alliances with other nations and marry all kinds of women. And so Solomon has wives in the hundred, concubines in the hundreds, and he goes after the gods of the women that he'd fallen in love with. In the New Testament, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who were part of the church at the time of Pentecost. You talk about, like, if there's a time where you're going to be on fire for the Lord, you're going to be walking the straight and narrow. Ananias and Sapphira were there when, like, like Paul's shadow is healing people. Peter and John, like, caused the lame man to walk in the temple in in Acts chapter 4 and 5. Ananias and Sapphira were there. But then this desire to control their wealth, this this way of communicating to God, like this part of my life is off limits to you, cost them everything. And the fear of God came over the church when Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead, lying in the presence of the apostles about their wealth. The things that we do because we have or because we do not have money, sex, and power have the capacity to destroy us. And the story is just all too predictable. We can see it coming all the way across town. Just in the last week, there was another heartbreaking story of, uh, you know, a kind of prominent celebrity type pastor, megachurch pastor, who uh, had tons of money, speaking gigs, things like that. Tons of influence, relationships with celebrities. He's being taken picture, having his picture taken with people in power. And what happened? Well, his church had to fire him because of marital infidelity. Money, sex, and power. This is what Paul was getting at in 1 Corinthians when he said, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Uh, This is is stuff that everyone struggles with. And so for those of you who are are watching, those of you who are listening at home, I'll just say, don't be shamed into defensiveness because of your individual struggle, but do hear the words of caution here. There's a predictable pattern. There's a kind of script that that follows when we're inattentive or when we're lazy, when we fail to practice the kind of vigilance required, when we leave open the doors and the windows of our hearts. 
The author says, I looked out the window of my house through the lattice. I noticed a young man, a young man, a youth who had no sense, who was going down the street near her corner. When it comes to money and sex and power, left unattended, I know, and you know, and we know where this story is going to lead us. In the text today in Ephesians chapter 6, we reflect on Paul's call to arms. And it's this invitation, if you zoom out and think about what he's doing big picture, it's this invitation to alertness, to sobriety, to a a kind of spiritual fitness. He says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. If you're listening, I want you to just in your mind to underline that word power. Maybe you have your Bible open in front of you. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. If you could do a study of that word alone in the book of Ephesians, eight times or more, Paul uses that idea of power, being strong in the Lord's mighty power. Because Paul can't imagine a Christian life that is void of the power of God. Precisely because there are powers of the enemy scheming against us, we need divine power to sustain and uphold us. Eight times in this letter, Paul references the the presence of God's power in the life of the believer. A couple examples. Uh, Ephesians 1.19, he says, I pray that you might know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Uh, Ephesians 3.7, he says, I became a servant of this gospel through the working of his power. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 16, may he strengthen you with power through the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 3, 18, may you have power to grasp how wide and long and deep and high is his love. Ephesians 3, 20, to him who can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power at work in us, We see in Acts 1, Jesus promises power that Paul has just, it's just in his vocabulary of the Christian life. Uh, It flows from Jesus. Jesus made a promise of power at his ascension. Acts 1.8 says, go to Jerusalem and wait. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you so that you can be my witnesses in all the world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Power, the working assumption of Paul and I think certainly of Jesus here is this is a kind of supernatural energy or capacity of wisdom, of authority. We remember in studying the Sermon on the Mount this year that as Jesus wrapped the Sermon on the Mount, the people were amazed because he spoke as one who had power, one who had natural authority. This divine power is, is more than mere intellect. It's not just a capacity for persuasion. It's certainly not about intimidation. It's this supernatural energy given to sustain us for the Christian life, the Christian journey. Uh, 2020 has been a crazy year. And in all the weddings I've done this year, I've I've told couples, you are always going to remember the year in which you were married. Because 2020 has been wild. And if the Lord has taught me anything this year, it is that I am not strong enough, smart enough, capable enough uh, to be a good, just to be a good person, or or much less to be a faithful pastor or a, a good parent. I don't have the power on my own, given the challenges of life in the world today, to to make it. I don't have that power intrinsic. 
Uh, some of you will remember the story that I love of uh, the revival in the Scottish Isle of the Hebrides. And the Hebridean church for so long had been trying to reawaken the church to you know, recruit the young, to convert them to the way of Jesus, but it, it was to no avail. And then one of their leaders came to this insight. He said, it's my own deep conviction that the average man is not going to be impressed by our publicity, our posters, our programs. In other words, the average person is not going to be impressed by the things that we do according to our own power to convince people to like us or to be part of the church. But then he said, but let there be a demonstration of the power of God, and at once men and women are arrested. They're gripped. Picture Paul on the way to uh, Damascus, uh, where he's gripped, he's blinded by the power of God. It changes the course of his life. Paul says in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. I think a natural question for us to reflect on is, are we asking the Lord to empower us? Like Jesus in Acts 1.8, are we asking to be clothed with power on high for God to strengthen us, as Paul prayed in, earlier in Ephesians, for God to strengthen us with power in our inner being? For many of us, we're not making that ask because we're not aware of any lack of power uh, that we currently have. And we've been lulled or trained into a kind of self-reliance through a life of comfort and plenty and success. Rather than being a huge catastrophic failure operating on our own power, we've been lulled into thinking that like, we're actually doing just fine on our own. Uh, John Tyson in Beautiful Resistance says he, he once asked a believer in a persecuted church what he thought of American Christians. And the, the, the persecuted believer said, so much food, so little power. Doing things like fasting can be transformative because it puts us in touch with our fragility, with our powerlessness, and it gives us, can give us this desire to be clothed in power from on high. Uh, I, I traveled a bit this week, and I heard a pastor say that it's actually much easier to form disciples in his major metropolitan city precisely because uh, it's thought to be this godless and pagan place. In his city, there's really no like middle ground. You're either in for the way of Jesus or you're not. It's one way or the other. If you're in, it is going to seriously inconvenience your life. It, is, it likely will be a hindrance to your work. It might mean that you are socially ostracized. But feeling the, the cost of following in a pagan and idolatrous city, you hunger for power from on high. You need Christian community like you don't in many other parts of our country where we feel quite comfortable being Christian. In many parts of our country, Tulsa is certainly included on that, there often feels like there's no conflict between having a foot in the kingdom of God and a foot in the kingdom of self. It feels like you can have your cake and eat it too. In fact, we could build a really successful church numerically on personality or talent or likability and never actually tap in to the power of God. And as a result of that, also never threaten the powers and the principalities of darkness that have dominion over the lives of many people, and systems, and institutions, and hearts in our city. 
But Paul goes on to paint a very different picture of the Christian life. Very different than one that's just skating by on likability and luck. Flowing out of verse 10, having been clothed with power from on high, he urges the church to get ready for battle against the schemes of the devil and against the spiritual forces of evil. I've heard people tell stories of walking through, uh, you know, like being exposed to human trafficking rings in foreign countries or seeing truly depraved behavior around the world. And the, the sense of evil is palpable. And the Apostle Paul here is calling the church to arm, to arm ourselves with the power of God and then to get ready for battle. I've heard stories of some Christians who will take this passage and, you know, imaginatively put on the armor of God as they're getting ready for their day. And that's great. I think that's great. But I don't want to get lost in the particulars of individual pieces of armor. Paul uses this metaphor elsewhere in a number, in a, in a different epistle and uses the, the, the metaphor kind of differently. So don't get hung up on the individual pieces of armor here. Without getting lost in, in the particulars, Paul is giving us here a vision of a Christian who is equipped head to toe with, with readiness, both to defend, so we have the vision of the armor as a whole here to defend us, but also, you know, like the shield, and to offend, that is to be a part of making an offensive movement for the kingdom. We see the feet that are ready to run, the sword that's ready uh, to do battle. It's a vision of the power and the reign of God permeating through a person's entire being. You can see kind of imaginatively how it links with what Jesus called the most important commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. To love the Lord with all of your heart, the breastplate of righteousness guarding our heart. With our soul, we see the belt of truth kind of like hold it like at the core of our being, like our loins to use kind of a semi-awkward Bible-ish word. But like our soul, our, 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 our deepest instincts and longings, the deepest part of you, God has dominion over it. Your mind, there's the helmet of salvation guarding our mind, taking captive every thought and making it obedient to Christ. And then loving him with our strength, there's, there's the sword and the shield. We're ready to do battle. In this picture, every part of me is open to the Spirit's divine equipping Every part of me is being transformed and renewed and equipped to not merely survive the Christian journey, but to engage God in battle against the powers and the principalities of evil. As we, as we imagine this text, we think about uh, you know, any person who's getting ready for battle is asking questions about our vulnerabilities. Where are their little chinks in the armor where I could be attacked, where I'm exposed. I think it's, it's worthwhile for each of us to ask those questions about our own vulnerabilities when it comes to those topics of money and sex and power, the temptations that are common to all people. Now, you might not say, like, I'm, I'm rich or, you know, you're not, like, sexually promiscuous or you're like, I'm not a super powerful person, but examine the dark corners of your own heart and consider whether it's navigating relational networks and trying to get people to do what you want or just your own thirst for significance that you think is attached to having money. Consider your vulnerabilities in the areas of money and sex and power. 
We lock our doors at night so that people won't come in. We turn our security system on so that we're alarmed if there's an invasion, and yet we don't have the same kind of readiness when it comes to these vulnerabilities. How is the Lord inviting you today as you consider the threats of money or sex or power, or maybe you would name one that doesn't feel adequately covered by those headings? How is the Lord inviting you to have a kind of readiness and defensiveness And the topic of money, you know, I think this can be a stumbling block if you have it or if you don't have it, because it can be the thing that you set your heart on. Where your money is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are you treasuring? I've said before that every time we give, we're telling our hearts, this is one less dollar that owes me. In view of the common temptation and the idolatry of money, I think the way of Jesus invites us to a place of radical generosity. Uh, You know, I'm not a stickler on the tithe, though the Old Testament, I think, trains us to be systematic and have percentages of giving. I think the New Testament is actually much more challenging. It's not just 10% that we owe God. 100% of what we own, we recognize, belongs to him. One songwriter said, we have nothing to give that didn't first come from your hands. We have nothing to offer you that you did not provide. Every good and perfect gift comes from your kind and gracious heart. And all we do is give back to you what always has been yours. Recognizing that everything we have comes from God. Deuteronomy says it's the Lord who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Having recognized that everything comes from God and recognizing the vulnerability that comes with our relationship with money, I think the way of Jesus invites us to overtly, deliberately confront this vulnerability with radical generosity. Now, some folks, like you have never given away a dollar in your life to a charity or to the church. I would invite you to take bold and decisive action to confront that vulnerability and that temptation. Every time you give, every time you give toward the king, you're saying, this is one less dollar that owes me, owns me. Especially take the wisdom of the Sermon on the Mount and tandem and do it in secret, in secret, to wage war against the temptation of money. Well, what about sex? Oh man, sex is such an, a common temptation in our church. I would say if I, if I had a really vulnerable poll going on in the church to say how many people struggle one way or another with temptations related to sex, men and women, I'm guessing a large percentage, if not a majority of the church says that's me. In view of the temptations uh, surrounding sex, I think the, 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 the way of Jesus invites us to take bold and decisive action, to be constantly vigilant in this department. Uh, the way of Jesus invites uh, celibacy and singleness and fidelity in Christian marriage. I think, I think because of how sexually promiscuous our world is, especially for men, but perhaps for everyone, this should be a topic of regular and open confession among Christian friends and in community. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Part of disarming the temptation in the area of sexuality is in living in the light, being completely transparent. I think there's some great tools we can use to make our screens available to people that we trust, our search history available to people that we trust, being really diligent about the the unique temptations of being in a hotel room alone or traveling with people to whom you're not married. I think the way of Jesus invites us to take bold, decisive action in community against the vulnerability around our 
uh, our sexuality. So maybe we need to cancel some subscriptions and confess. And finally, we have the vulnerability surrounding power. I believe that the more public your power, and I am speaking very self-consciously as a pastor right now who, in our context, like has a form of power and authority. I think the more public your power is, the greater the need for private accountability. So a really important part of my life is regularly being in like systematic relationship with people uh, with whom like I'm confessing sin, with whom I'm honestly sharing about the, the difficulties and the challenges of life and trying to be conscious of how I'm stewarding my power for the benefit of others. Now, you may not be the pastor of a church, but you may be the leader of a business. You may be HR director. You may be the leader of your family. Uh, you, you, may have a, you may be a teacher. Uh, in, to whatever degree you've been entrusted with some form of power, how can you systematically ensure that you are using that power not to undergird your sense of self, but actually to elevate and to serve other people? This is what we see Jesus doing in John chapter 13 as he washes the disciples' feet. Jesus, knowing that he had come from the Father and would return to the Father, got up from the table, removed his outer garment, and washed their feet. He sat down on the table and said, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's who I am. And if I, your teacher and Lord, have done this for you, so you should do this for each other. Conscious of his power, he honored and he elevated. How can you ensure that with the, the power that you've been entrusted, that you are honoring and serving and elevating others and not only undergirding your own power and influence. We've all been given power. The greater your power, the more important the need for private confession, vulnerability, accountability, and transparency. In view of the battle that's waging and the schemes of the enemy that are coming against us, we ask ourselves, what are our vulnerabilities? But it's equally important to ask the question, what is my power source? COVID has exposed all kinds of weaknesses in our systems and our relationships and our souls this year. As we've been stripped from community, many people living in quarantine, our anxiety has been increasing. The election has triggered fears. Lots of us are we're seeing stress behaviors in one another. And this question is just so pertinent. What is my power source? What's going to be the thing that helps me make it in life and not only survive, but actually like join God in, a, in an offensive strategy? What is my power source? I believe it to be true that God ultimately, well, I'll say God, God comes where he is wanted and when he is wanted. Knowing this, aware of this tendency, I heard the story of a pastor who would pray walk all over his city and just say, God, you are wanted on this street. You are wanted on 41st Street. You're wanted on 51st Street. Uh, your, your power is wanted, your gifts are wanted, your healing is wanted, your wisdom is wanted. Just declaring, God, we want you to do stuff here. I think being mindful of the great commandment, being mindful of the armor of God. When we're asking, like, what is our power source? It's this great opportunity to specifically invite the reign of God into our lives. Lord, would you invade my mind? Would you purify my thoughts? Would you cause my mind to be a holy, to be submitted to you? Uh, would, you would you renew and restore my mind in this Romans 12, 2 kind of sense? Lord, would you invade my heart, the things that I treasure and cherish the most deeply? Would you transform my heart? 
Uh, the author of Proverbs says, guard your heart for, fr- for from it flows everything that you do. Lord, would you transform my heart and make it to be a place uh, like out of which flows like the goodness and the wisdom of God? Lord, I, would, you, would you ready my feet? Would you help me to be on my toes to serve you in every moment, in my work and in my driving and in my family life and in my friendships? Would you help my feet to be ready to respond to whatever it is that you're doing? Would you equip my hands to do battle, not against other people, not to be destructive, but to be constructive? Would you help me to proactively to guard myself and to do battle with the sword of the Spirit? Lord, would you invade my hands? Would you clothe me in power? I think if God ultimately comes where he is wanted, there's so much power in the believer saying, Lord, I want you. When was the last time you prayed that? When was the last time, and it's a dangerous prayer to say, Lord, I want more of you in my life. I want more of your presence. I want more of your power. I want more of your holiness to be worked out in my own heart and mind and life. Would you help me more more readily and more completely to love you with my heart and my soul, my mind, my strength? These are questions and prayers worth persevering in. Maybe it would cause you to begin to fast, to pray, to ask, Lord, would you clothe me? And ask not only for yourself, but for our church. Lord, would you clothe us with power from on high? I've been thinking a lot uh, as as we're looking for a different building to gather in. I've been thinking about what I love so much about this space where we are right now. I love the green space. The lawn has been such a gift as we've been here this year. And I think it gives me this sense of like church as retreat. Like it feels like this this really safe place to gather and security. But I've also been thinking as we've been looking at different properties and engaging, you know, different ideas of of like, like buildings that are planted in a concrete jungle. It's like, this doesn't feel quite as much of a retreat, and it it causes us to reconsider our metaphors. And another metaphor that's been supplied is that of a kingdom outpost that planted in the middle of this concrete jungle is this this community, this group of people who are resolved to living in the way of Jesus and doing battle against the enemy. I think we may need to change up our vocabulary and swap out some of our metaphors of self or metaphors of church so that we can join God this, this peaceful way of doing violence on the kingdom of the enemy, clothed from head to toe with power from on high, conscious and protecting one another in our unique vulnerabilities when it comes to money and sex and power, and with sobriety, with determination and resolve, joining God in the work of renewal that he's doing in the world. What are your vulnerabilities? What strength, power source are you relying on? It's an opportunity to change. So Lord, I just pray over all of the people who are listening and viewing today, I pray over myself. Lord, that you'd search us and know our hearts, that you'd test us, see if there's any offensive way in us, expose in us the vulnerabilities we face as it pertains to money and sex and power and other temptations. Would you expose it, Lord Jesus, and help us not to overly despair, to remember your grace to confess, to live in reality, to confess our struggles, but also to live in your grace and live in the light. If we, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sins. Help us to tell the truth about ourselves and our vulnerabilities. But also, Lord Jesus, as we come to this place of sobriety and honesty about where we are, would you clothe us with power from on high? 
Would you be in us what we cannot be? Would you do in us what we cannot do? And may the world take notice as we're we're transformed, as we join you in the renewal of all things. May we see it in our city, in our church, in our lives, in our time. Lord Jesus, we love you and we honor you. Pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, God loves you. God bless you. See you around.